0: sermon preparation, but um, you're learning from a collective base, um, not just from what God has taught me over the past years of my life and seminary, but also from commentaries and different other, other people that have learned the text well and have sought to, to communicate the text well. Um, and so you are in the process as believers gathering together this collective information about the character of God. Um, and I just want to make sure that um, the best way I can explain it is this: uh, Does anybody have a four hundred and one k at their workplace? Anybody have a matching four hundred and one k? Well, they'll match up to three percent of your four hundred and one k. Anybody else? Anybody here? Okay, yeah. So if you don't put in three percent, your your company won't give you anything. But if you put in one percent, they'll match the one. If you put in two, they'll match the two. If you put in well, any financial person, wow, any financial person will tell you, that sounds like my son Hayden there, Um, uh, anyways, all right, back on track, any financial person will tell you, take the free money, even if the 401k is terrible, take the free money, now you may not want to put in any more than the amount that they will match, the two percent or the three percent of your income, and then they'll give you, but they give you the two or three percent for free, Uh, that's like them offering you a raise, and you saying, eh, nah, And I just want to encourage you as we work through texts together as a church. That's kind of like being offered free money. If you don't take advantage of it, you lose it. Um, And uh, and it's something, the nice thing about this as working through texts as a body, is that you just have to bite it off one chunk at a time. Like you're not trying to absorb the whole Bible at once. You're just trying to bite off a chunk at a time. So it's like getting 3% of your income each week. Uh, week in, week out, and it's just collecting, and it's collecting, and it's collecting, and uh, and Lord willing, you won't wait until your retirement to use this collective information, but you'll use it as we go. So that's where the metaphor breaks down. But, anyways, so I just want to encourage you guys from the very beginning: take good notes, uh, pages and pages and pages, and and then apply it and apply it and apply it. So with that said, um, let's start Luke. Last week we did a big overview. Of Luke uh, it took seventy five minutes to do that, uh, but it's a big book and and uh, it's just I think it was grand, and I hope you guys in, enjoyed and, and learned a lot last week so now though uh, we're going to start with chapter one and we 're going to hit about a chapter a week uh, and so I want to start off with the same question that we had last week, and that is who is Jesus and we've been asking that question we did not solve that answer last week we did not answer it to its fullest nor will we ever answer so that's really a question technically that we could ask almost every single week Um, and I want us to keep this question in the back of our mind as we study the book of Luke because anytime particularly we study the gospels it's about revealing the person and the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ now ultimately all of God's word is about revealing who God is and that includes Jesus of course But particularly in the Gospels, we have a recounting of the life of Jesus. So we get to see, very particularly, who Jesus was and how he lived his life. Uh, And if this is the person to whom we are being made into the image of, um, it would behoove us greatly to pay great attention to, uh, to his life. Now today we talk about Jesus. We have different definitions of Jesus as we talked about last week. Uh, we have mu- we have musicals that refer to him as a superstar. Uh, we have uh, Jesus action figures. I do not own any of those, nor will my kids ever. Uh, I think that is, uh, anyways, I can go on about that. But uh, the world is full of books on Jesus, right? Um, uh, we have lots of people who seek to describe who Jesus is, some from a biblical perspective, some from other perspectives, like what they desire, what they hope for, and and all those such things. Um, uh, maybe there's other examples of people's portrayals of Jesus. Uh, what's interesting, as you, as you look at different books that are trying to portray Jesus, oftentimes, uh, they just simply end up portraying the desires of the author. So you have the homosexual author who portrays Jesus as the homosexual, and then you have the egalitarian or the equal roles within... Um, the marriage, not equal in dignity, but equal roles, you have those guys portraying Jesus as, uh, as not the leader that he came to be. Um, and, uh, you know, you have the politician writing books who describe Jesus as the one who came for political reasons and, and uh, so on and so forth. So it ends up just portraying just simply the desires of the author. And, and thank God, I don't think that Luke, although he writes from his vantage point, And with his personality and with his skills, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, though, he gives a portrayal that we can believe is accurate. Because it's not about Luke, ultimately. It's ultimately about God and his revelation of himself through the character of Jesus in the book of Luke. So we want to know the truth about Jesus not in such a way that the truth ends up justifying our sin and not in such a way that makes us necessarily feel good. Now, Lord willing, when we actually step back and see the big picture, it should result in joy and graciousness and kindness upon us. But, but we, don't want to, our, we don't want our motivation in our interpretation and what we take away from the text being our desire to make us feel good. So we don't want to go to the text and go, how can I view Jesus in such a way that it justifies my lifestyle or it justifies my desires, good or bad? But in such a way that goes, what is the text telling us about Jesus? And that's really hard. So what I'm, what I'm asking us to do, what I'm encouraging us to do, is to, to, to try to set aside some of our bias as much as possible, and just see what is the text plainly saying about Jesus, then move to how does that apply to us in our daily lives. Okay? It's kind of setting the stage for us. So with that, let's go to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4, talk about it. Then we're going to read another section, talk about it, read another section, talk about it. So we're not going to read all of chapter 1 here in the beginning, but we will eventually read all of chapter 1 as we proceed this morning. So verses 1 through 4. We read this last week. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That you, have, that you may have certainty, this is his purpose, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So what we see here in verse 2, or this is what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through the verses here. Verse 2, you see that Luke was clearly interested in the truthfulness of what he was reporting. He said, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers to the word who delivered them to us, I think it's significant here, just as a point of introduction, that Luke does not claim to be an eyewitness. I think that's I think that's important. That that he is honest and integral enough to say I was not an eyewitness, but I listened and researched the eyewitnesses. Then in verse three, he said he followed closely all things for some time. I remind, I remind you that Luke was, excuse me, one of Paul's disciples. We also see here that it was written to or for Theophilus. Theophilus was probably the funding member of this party. He's probably the one that paid for the project. Um, This would have not been something, again, that could have been handled over email, but would have been something that would have taken a long time uh, for Luke to write. Uh, We don't know that for sure. That's a little bit of speculation. But we do know that Luke addresses him, the way Luke addresses him, addresses him here, suggests that he's some sort of high-ranking person when he says most excellent Theophilus. That's not a title that you see often uh, or ever for that matter in, in Scripture, at least in the New Testament, in a Greek sense, in this kind of setting. We know that Theophilus had been taught about Christianity, right? Because he's saying, I'm writing these things so that you would have certainty concerning the things, what? That you have been taught. So we know Theophilus has been taught Christianity. So he's, he's He's proclaiming these things and, and researching these things for Theophilus so that he would have certainty. So here's Theophilus is learning about Jesus. And, and Luke goes, and, and, and somehow in there must have said to Luke, I want you to research all these things that I'm being taught. Like, who is this Jesus? I'm being taught about Jesus. But who who is? I want you to research this stuff. I want you to look it up. I want you to to test the eyewitnesses. I want you to ask all the people and and compare their stories and, and so that I then at the end can be certain that these things of Jesus are true. And so clearly that application serves us greatly today. Many of us know lots of things about God. We know lots of things about the Christian life. We know lots of things about the church. My fear, though, is that many of us don't know the character of God. We don't tie things back to the character of God, who God is, because this ultimately is a revelation of God. Ultimately, this reveals who God is. And then the truth of who God is, then as that translates in and applies and is practiced in our life, then brings about transformation. It's not truth for the purpose of imparting information but for the purpose of bringing about transformation. So the character of God is revealed in the scriptures of God brings about transformation in the people of God. It's not just for informational purposes. So if we are going to learn in the word this Christian life and this facts about how we are Christians, all, all of that ultimately comes from God. Who God is. And this reveals who God is. Yes. So Luke is revealing who Jesus is. And Jesus is who? The exact imprint of God. He's the glory of God, right? So as he reveals to us Jesus, Luke is revealing to us God. As we see Jesus perfectly live this life, he's living perfectly the character of God. He's demonstrating for us the character of God, as he himself is God. So if we want to learn how to live in light of the character of God, then we have to learn how Jesus lives and then see how that reveals the character of God. Okay. So what ultimately here Luke is doing is he is revealing to Theophilus the character of God that will then bring about certainty on the things that Theophilus has been taught. And so if we then today have been taught lots of Christian stuff, if we look at the book of Luke as revealing the character of God, then it should bring foundation. It should bring support to then how do we live this life out in light of the character of of God, so that we might be certain concerning the things that we have been taught. We can't be certain of the promises of God unless we know the character of God. We can't be certain of how to live this life without knowing the character of God. So, Luke here has a great concern for certainty. He wanted Theophilus to have an accurate account. That he could be confident of. And isn't God gracious to us. To be concerned about giving us now. An accurate account. Not a haphazard account. But an accurate account. I mean God is not haphazard. He does everything with purpose and plan right. And he's sovereign over it all. And he has chosen in his graciousness. To give us an accurate account. Of Jesus. Of his revelation of himself to us. I mean take. Take note here of the certainty and tie that to the trustworthiness of God. That God is trustworthy and in His trustworthiness, that characteristic of God, He is desireful to be certain and to give an accurate account of the things so that we can be certain of Him. Not flippant, not uneasy, not with fear, but that we can be certain of the things that we have been taught. Why can we be certain? Because they all come from the character of God. They all ultimately reveal who God is. So as we begin the book of Luke, we want to look at God. I mean, God is the one through whom the whole story begins and to whom it points. All of the word of God. So we're not separating now. everything that I've just said about the book of Luke ultimately is also true about the entire Bible. Here we just have a specific account of the life and person of Jesus Christ. So, as we begin chapter 1, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at five aspects of God's character revealed in chapter 1. Five aspects of God's character revealed in chapter 1. Now, as we go, I want to give you kind of a hermeneutical reference point here. You know, how do we understand Scripture? We're, we're reading through largely narratives and Parables. So this is stories, and and then uh, you know r- like uh, non-fictional stories, and then we have like fictional stories. So non-fictional stories in that it's a narrative recounting the life of Jesus, and then within that narrative, we have Jesus then telling fictional stories, what we call parables. Um, now all of these. So when we interpret, we can't just go through the story and read a line and go. Okay, so Jesus walked on the ground, so that means that I should never fly. Like, that's not the point of the story. Does that make sense? So we don't go, okay, Jesus got up at 8 a.m. to go to the well, so that means I should get up at 8 a.m. to go to the well. No, that's not the point. But instead, I think kind of giving a general principle of how we understand um, narratives is we um, look for the climax of the story. And typically in a narrative, you're going to have usually like one main point. Uh, In a parable, you're going to have particularly one main point. Now, clearly there's aspects of Jesus in his life as he's living, and as Luke is recounting it here, that we can model. Clearly, if Jesus sees it important to talk to someone that's not like him, like as in the story of the woman at the well, then that's probably something there for us to learn as well. But just because he went to the well and talked to a woman doesn't mean we need to go to wells and talk to women. Does that make sense? So you're pressing the story too much. We don't want to press the story too much. That's how we get into heresy and all this malarkey and bullcrap, right? So we don't want to do that, but we have to walk away. With what is the principle? What is Jesus modeling for us? Kind of like the Old Testament. What is the intent that God is trying to display for us? And so I think here, as we approach the beginning here, we're going to look at five aspects of the character of God. What is what is it about God that's being displayed in the passage, in the text? Okay? The first one is this. God is obviously just. God is obviously just. Let's think about this for a second. God, as we have seen over the past over the Gospel and Kingdom series, God always warns before He punishes. So with Noah and the flood, what's he do? He warns, right? The flood is coming. Think about Jonah and Nineveh. The whole purpose of Jonah to go to Nineveh was to warn them before the punishment. It was to enforce the covenant. It was to say, this is what's coming if you do not do this. the same thing with the sermon. God, for some of you today, this is a warning sermon. For some of you, this is going to be an encouragement sermon. Like, I've got some of this down, and this is good. And then other parts of us, it might be, for some of us, it might be part encouragement and part a warning. Saying, if you don't live in light of the character of God in this area of your life, then it's going to bring about judgment or punishment in your life. Consequences in our lives. So, here we see God's justice as He warns once again at the very beginning of the book of Luke. We see this with John the Baptist. He comes warning about the kingdom of God and its coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And here we see God warning and we see God's justice in His warning before judgment comes. Let's read verse 5 through 25 of Luke chapter 1. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zachariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wandering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So here, the very beginning, Luke turns to a time period during Herod the Great. This is about from around 20 or Herod ruled from 27 B.C. to 4 B.C. And Luke begins with a Levite named Zechariah. It's interesting, the word Zechariah actually means God has remembered. If you remember the storyline, what has happened? For 400 years thus far, God has been silent. He has not spoken to His people. But He made all these promises, right? So we have the partial kingdom, and then in the, as the partial kingdom declines, we see the prophesied kingdom, that all of this, this change of heart, and, and the people will be renewed, and, and God's kingdom will be established. All that's been promised, and then silence. God's been silent for 400 years, and here God finally speaks to Zechariah, and his name means God has remembered. Think about that. God has not forgot. Right? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus' return, like an ascension to heaven. God still has not forgot. Okay? But we see God has not forgotten. Zachariah and his wife were good people, the text tells us, that they obeyed the Levitical laws, that they were, tells us that they were pretty old, that they had not had any children, and that Elizabeth was, was barren. Now, to kind of paint the picture here, as a Levitical priest, Zechariah gets chosen here in the text to enter into the Holy of Holies and offer up the burnt incense. Now, the, the offering of burnt incense was offered up twice a day so that the incense would never cease taking place in the temple. Now, without going into all the details, this would have been largely a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. I mean, there were hundreds of priests that served on a daily basis, so the chances of him getting chosen... It was very, very minuscule. So as he enters in to the temple, he's visited by Gabriel. And the text tells us that he was startled and gripped with fear. Now just very quickly, this is typical. When an angel of the Lord appears in the word of God, it is not, oh, hi, how are you? That's really cool. Like, oh, thank you. They're gripped with fear and awe. I mean, we portray angels in a much different way, right? It's the little six-year-old who can't stand still on stage that has the white robe and looks, you know, that's how we portray angels today. Um, I don't even know that in the History Channel, the Bible, that's portrayed in the History Channel, we have, like, Jackie Chan, and, uh, Ninja, Gabriel. Like, I don't know if that's too correct either. I mean, like, he's filled with awe, and he didn't have to do any, like, karate chopping stuff, Right? Uh, he's filled with awe at the presence of the angel. So think about it, these angels are dwelling with God. So there has to be, I mean, when we talk about Moses coming down from the mountain, after having been in the presence of God, and the awe of of who, of what had just happened, and him, and the change in him, same thing here. So it's not the and I'm not saying, you know, all little Christmas story plays are bad because we have four-year-old angels and their blonde hair, blue eyes. I, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, there's an awe struck that takes place when the Lord God sends his messenger to speak to Zechariah. He was startled and gripped by fear. The angel tells him that his wife will give birth to a son. That he's to call him John. So this child's whole life will be a demonstration of God's power. And I think this is why. So if it's going to be a demonstration of God's power, I think this is why in verse 15 it said that he's never to drink wine. Let's talk about this for a few moments, particularly if you have a Baptist background. I don't think that it says anything about whether preachers should drink. I don't think that's the point of the text, right? The church hasn't even been established yet. So he's not referring to elders. That doesn't come until Acts and Luke would know because he wrote Acts 2. He goes, I, I, and I don't think that it says anything about whether or not Christians should drink. I think what's going on here is that God does not want John's unusual practices, his unusual boldness, to be mistaken as the evidence of some other spirits. Okay, You get what I'm saying? All right, all right. <laughs> yeah. He wanted wanted to be clear. I think what God he wanted him to be clear that it was the evidence of his spirit. So God forbids him from having anything intoxicating. So I think the hint, though, so you go, well, all right, Matt, well, that's really convenient, you know, for your drinking problem. But what, what how do you get this from the text? Look in the next, look at verse 15 with me for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and most Baptists go, right there you go, no alcohol. And then he said, but in the same sentence, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I think that's, he's hinting at, this is the purpose. It's not that he should abstain from wine so that for whatever reason, like it's so that I think there's no mistake in what's going on in his life. So he cannot be accused. And we see later the blamelessness and all those things. Uh, so he cannot be accused of these things. That It's clear. So I mean, think about the role of John the Baptist. He's coming to proclaim the coming of God. Let's not confuse where this power and inordinate working is taking place from. It's not coming from spirits. It's coming from the Spirit of God. So in response, what does Zechariah do? He, he does not believe Gabriel, right? I mean, come on. Like If the angel comes to me and says anything, like you're going to fly like Peter Pan tomorrow, I'm going to go hallelujah, man, whatever. I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm flying tomorrow, man. Uh... Zechariah says, yeah, right. Like, it's not going to happen. How is this possible? So what happens is God silences Zechariah. He, he basically takes his speaking away. This is a big deal. I mean, the priest at this point who made this offering, when they came out of the temple after offering up the offering of incense, and this happens twice a day, priest comes out twice a day, they're to give a benediction, basically a blessing to God. That's like their role. So they go on the offer, they come out, and then they speak to the people. And God says, uh-uh, you're not going to be able to speak to the people because you did not believe. So he comes out and he cannot make a sound. And we see then subsequently in verse 24 and 25 that Elizabeth does conceive just as God had promised. And so the story begins there. Elizabeth responds to God's Word with faith. And I would say as a point of application to us that that would be something worthy of us, uh, of our modeling. That we should respond to God's Word with faith. That we should respond to it with faith. When we do, we're believing that His Word is true. I would argue a lack of faith and unbelief are virtually the same thing. We have faith in God. We have belief in God. Belief in who He is. And it's wonderful in verse 25. She knows who to pray to. She says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. We know clearly that the idea of her being barren was a big deal. This is highly looked down upon in their culture to that day. But she knows who to praise in that moment, who to pray to. And I would say also to us, in light of the, God's character concerning justice, we teach, we warn, we wait, and we pray. We teach, we warn, we wait, and we pray. Because what's going on here? So we see the character of God. He's just. How is He just? He's just in warning through John the Baptist the coming of of Jesus, and then the subsequent judgment that will take place, the salvation and the subsequent judgment. So how do we then live in light of that? We teach, we warn, we wait, we pray. This is what's going on. So if we see God is just, and one of the ways in which He lives this justice out is by warning people and proclaiming the coming of Jesus, then we do the same thing. That's how we live in light of the character of God. We believe that this is true and then our actions follow the belief that this is what's true. I think many of us don't ultimately, if we're not proclaiming the truth of God that He is coming, that judgment is coming, but there is hope in the gospel, if we don't proclaim that ultimately, it's probably because we don't believe it's really true. Or at least we believe it up here, but it hasn't sunk into here. If we believe God is just, then we will do this in our lives. We will do the same thing. So, not only is God just that we see in the text, but we also see that God who is personally involved. We see a God who is personally involved. What do you mean personally involved? I think we see this in the Incarnation. The fact that God does not stand up here for all of eternity, but instead descends to become a man. Talk about personal involvement. I mean, if any of you have worked on an assembly line or in a big, huge factory, or imagine working working on an assembly line for GE, one of the largest, if not the largest, corporation in the world. And imagine the CEO coming down to screw in 19 screws into the side of a refrigerator with you for 12 hours a day, 6 days a week. And then that fails to compare to the greatness of God coming down in the incarnation. Talk about being personally involved with the people. He is sent here, or we see the incarnation here in God becoming a man. So let's read verse 26 through 38 and see what we see. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern the sort of greetings this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Think about what's being said here. The throne of your father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, there will be no end. I mean, let's just pause just a moment. Like, Zechariah is told that you're going to have a baby, and you're old, Right? Mary's told she's going to have a baby, and He's going to be the Savior of the world. Wow! It's one thing to open up a barren womb. It's another thing for God to break into this world. So let's continue. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Let's work through this text with fresh eyes and see what we see here. Verse 27. Let's talk about um, betrothal for just a moment. Her pledge to marry would have been more than just a simple engagement. Um, would have involved, typically they involved formal exchange of consent before witnesses. Very similar to an actual marriage. Um, the lady betrothed would continue to live with her own family while the man then would go Prepare. Prepare for their marriage, for where they would live, and all of that that included. So she's betrothed. Gabriel comes and says to Mary that Mary is highly favored. Now let's talk about this for just a moment as we live in a highly Catholic culture around this. This does not mean that she was really good. What do we know about favor? the grace of God, what about favor with Abraham? Did Abraham do anything to earn? What God was doing? No, so I don't think that He's saying that she was really good. We see here at first Mary doesn't know what to think when He tells her that she will have a child. Now, last time something like this happened, the person was muted, so there's got to be a difference in the situation, right? I mean, it's in the same chapter, Luke chapter one, verse thirty-two and thirty-three. Look at me. It says He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give Him to the throne or give Him. Give to him, sorry, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, think about the rich Old Testament background that we just got done talking about that we see here. This is the answer. Go look at this later, 2 Samuel chapter 7, is the answer to David's prayer. It's the only kingdom to have no end, is the kingdom of God. Right? The king he said just says that the kingdom of he will be given a kingdom. Or, and of His kingdom, there will be no end. So He's saying to her that this will be the kingdom of God, and it will be your sons. It's crazy. We I mean, think about gospel and kingdom and what we've just looked about. And, and He just says to Mary, that little baby you're going to have, it's going to be His. Again, like at this point, if I marry, like, you know, I'm fainting, right? Whoa. All Mary can say is this, how will it be? I don't think that Mary, because of the context, here, I don't think that Mary is doubting like Zechariah, but instead is more wondering, how will this happen? How will this happen? Not, how will this happen? Not, how will this happen? And then, see in the text, I kind of paused as we were reading. See in the text the echo of creation in the how this will happen. Look back in the text with me. In verse thirty-five it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will what overshadow you. Where do we know? Where do we see another shadow like the Holy Spirit coming over? Where do we see that at? Let me see that at. Come on. Hovering over what do we where's that at? Holy Spirit, where? Creation. yeah, what do you think is happening here? So when the Holy Spirit comes over and overshadows Mary, what's what's it the, the beginning of? What's at the beginning? New creation absolutely. with the new creation beginning here we see the language is the same. The new creation is going to begin. He's telling her that when you conceive the new creation, has begun. Not that. I hope you never read the, the Christmas story again the same way. The new creation is beginning. And then all that that implies. And then see the echo of the Holy Spirit filling the tabernacle. He says... This is when, again, this is the how. How is this going to take place? New creation is going to begin, and the Holy Spirit is going to fill him and you. It says, The Holy Spirit, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. When did the Holy Spirit come upon people? Very, very rare. Consistently, it did in the tabernacle, Right? The new creation was beginning. So let's let's talk about Mary here for just a few more moments. The Bible never teaches that Mary was born without sin, lived without sin, or was taken up bodily into heaven without dying, okay? This is not what the Bible teaches us about Mary, but instead she is an example of accepting an honor that would include the possibility of earthly suffering. I mean, think about Mary as virgin... It's not highly looked upon, particularly in Jewish culture, for her to be pregnant without being married. This is going to bring about suffering in her life, but instead, she takes this honor gladly. So she's an example of that, but she's not an example of sinless living. But instead, uh, her faith here is displayed, I think, is amazing. So even in the midst of trying times, she was faithful and believed she could and probably would be mocked and it would also be trying for her soon-to-be husband as well this is a big deal but she knew that ultimately what she had was a blessing so here mary is being told that what's going to come upon you is going to be awesome In the back of her mind, she knows this is going to bring about some potential suffering in my life. But ultimately, her hope is not placed in the suffering or the way people are going to look at her. Her hope is placed in the God who's about to bring about a marvelous act in her life. And I would encourage us that we need to realize that even when we are mocked, that what we have is truly a blessing. That Mary, and what she's about to be mocked in, was truly a blessing. Now, let's talk about how this applies to us. Some of us might be mocked by the world for our faith. I don't see that typically happening, uh, at least in our cultures, but I wonder if the majority of our mocking doesn't come from inside. It comes from inside. So I know in this moment that I should place my hope in Jesus, but that's just stupid. Instead, I need to pick myself up and go change the situation, then I can feel better. It's just simply mocking the hope that we have inside, and then ultimately where we don't believe in that hope, and then we don't live in light of that hope. And, um, I think for many of us, we don't realize the blessing that we have, so we don't live in light of that blessing, that hope that we have. Let's continue on. The Incarnation Here, this is not God in the distance. Instead, He is one who personally involved Himself in all of humanity during this time in history. Think about this. He has involved Himself in our lives. When we sing truths of God, does that strike you that He has involved Himself in your life? He did not have to. So as God involves himself in his life, what do we see about the character of God? There's many things that we see, but one thing that I would point out to us is that we should love one another in self-giving humility. What do we see God doing here in his personal involvement in the people? We see his humble self-giving. That God humiliates himself to come to earth to give himself to us, right? And then who are we to hoard ourselves, particularly in the community of God? When he has given himself to us, in order for us to live in light of that, we must then give ourselves to others. What does that look like? What does that look like? I think it means putting aside our preferences, desires, and submitting to one another. I think it's a willingness to give ourselves to each other. So, what does it mean to like give ourselves to each other? I think it means, at the very least, to ask questions of each other. Questions like, "How's your marriage? How's your finances?" how's your heart? It also means questions of, hey, can you help me with this? Also means rebuking each other at times. Like, it's hard, honestly, I I think to do gospel-centered rebuking because you have to ultimately look at the Log in your own eye, repent, and then go. And that takes a lot of work. That's a, that's a humble, that's a humility, and that's a self-giving. Because you have to give up a lot to do gospel rebuking. Also, to encourage each other, it takes time. To encourage each other implies that you're listening to each other. If you're not listening to each other, then you're not going to know what to encourage them in, nor what to rebuke them in. We should not be, this also means, this self-giving humility means that we should not be afraid to commit to each other. We have this commitment to each other. We not should be afraid for ongoing commitments to say, yeah, I I will come help you do that or I will be a part of that in your life, even if it costs me lots of sacrifice. Again, this is living in light of He who gave up everything to become a man so that we might have everything. Everything. Right, we should commit to each other. Now, practically here as a community, we have a covenant, right, that we have committed to each other. But that's not something that we just set aside and we we reference every once in a while. This is something we should be living out. And I would encourage you guys. uh, And we've established our covenant and our membership as a church to be something that we renew every time new members become a part of our church, but I would encourage you to go back and read it every once in a while. Read it once a month. Remind yourself, what have I committed to and what have people committed to me? And understand that that commitment reflects a self-giving God that did it in humility. So also God calls us to follow Christ with others in this commitment In this community, in this commitment, not to follow Christ on our own and not with just our family unit, our biological family unit. He's called us to follow Christ with a non biological family unit, but instead a spiritual family unit. So, God is obviously just, God is personally involved, and third, God is completely sovereign. God tends to do things in ways that we cannot take credit for, doesn't he? I think many of us oftentimes don't realize the greatness of God because we don't live in ways that require the greatness of God. And I'm not talking about taking big risks and you know investing lots of money in the lottery and then giving God a chance to do a miracle. That's not the point. Uh, but living in such a way that requires gospel explanation Like, we have this marriage this way, we depend upon the gospel, and because we depend upon the gospel in our marriage, then the marriage and the way it looks requires a gospel explanation. The only reason that this is possible, that we have this kind of marriage, is because of the gospel. And think about what that then says to the people around you. Think about the opportunities that that then presents. But if we don't live in those kind of ways, if we don't beg God for those realities in our lives, then we're not going to see and have lives that require a gospel explanation that only God can take credit for. So here we see God doing it very clearly. A Virgin Mary, uh, or the Virgin Mary, or, or an older, barren woman that He brings about life in both of these. And God uses the weak and the powerless in the world to point away from them and to Himself. That's part of why God, if you see throughout... The book of Luke, what God's using, in the book of Luke, it's it's not those who are rich, wealthy, powerful, with good reputations. He uses those that the only reasonable explanation for what's going on in their lives, the healing, the redemption, that's the only thing that's that's that the only reasonable explanation is it must be something out of this world. It can only be God. So do we live lives that are like that? Let's read verse 39 through 56 of Luke 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zachariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, what happened? The baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, the mother of my Lord should come to me? is what Mary asks. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud to the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought about the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and returned to her home. Let's review this really quick. Verse 41, the baby leaped in her womb. So you see an immediate recognition of God here. Verse 43 Elizabeth refers to Mary's baby as her Lord. God had clearly revealed this to Elizabeth. Remember, it talks about the Spirit speaking to her? Note that Elizabeth calls Mary, note this, calls Mary the mother of our Lord. She does not call Mary the mother of God. All right? So, Catholics, the mother of God. She calls them the mother of our Lord. I think this is important. Mary was not God's mother. The Bible never calls Mary that. The Bible never teaches that heaven has any other monarch than God Himself. This is not shared with Mary. So, Mary, far from being the greatest woman in heaven, is a sinner who herself needed to have faith in God's promises. Verse 45. So, Elizabeth refers to Mary as one who has believed. She's one who has believed. And Mary's own praise of God, go back and look, she speaks of Him as her Savior. If she was perfect and sinless, why does she need a Savior? If she is to be the monarch or the, uh, of heaven, then why does she need a Savior? She is, in, I think, clearly indicating that she is a sinner in need of a Savior. Christianity also has never taught that Mary is a part of the Trinity, never taught that Mary is God's wife. Christianity teaches that Mary was a sinner saved by God's grace and used in an amazing way by God's grace. Yeah, just like you and me, right? Now, I mean, I ain't planning on having no baby anytime soon. I mean, you know, but I mean, God can still use us all in a marvelous way, and I think that's what we see here with Mary. Verse 48, when Mary says that all generations will call me blessed... Don't think Mary. Mary is not being prideful and talking about she is good morally. Okay, Again, for the Catholics take that. We are good. She is good morally. I think what she is saying is that she is obviously in debt to God's kindness. That God has blessed her and she did not deserve it. Not that she's going to now be some sinless person. She recognizes that she is enslaved and in need of a savior. Verse 51 through 53. She talks about God has brought down rulers. And so certain is she. If you look at the Greek, she speaks in the past tense as if it's already happened. And God's bringing down rulers. She speaks as if it's already happened. Those who revolt against God will be put in their place. We see that in the psalm that we read earlier. God is the reason that we can be saved. Alright, so notice in this text, talking about God and God's character, notice God's sovereignty in His usage of unusual means. Notice His sovereignty in His usage or His utilization of unusual means. He does not use the usual that we would think would be the common way to get this task done couple quick comments here. If you are proud, God does not view you as deserving His love, but rather as deserving His punishment. This is what we see across the book of Luke. If we are proud, that's not the people that God came to save. If God is good, here's the deal, if God is good, He will punish you because of your sins against Him, even the sins that you have long forgotten. John 3.18, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned. But He has not believed because, why? He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So, God is good for judging sinners. But instead, if you are despairing, if you have humility, find your hope in God. As we think about this, our earthly hopes are fading away compared to the hope that we have in Christ. And I would say a mark of maturity in your faith is the gradual increase in hope in Jesus and the decrease in hope in everything else. The increase in hope in Jesus and the decrease in hope of everything else. Ourselves, our spouses, our workplace, our children. He's the one we must trust. And there is no situation. Man, those kids are like crazy this morning, aren't they not? Wow. Full moon? Yeah, whatever it is. Someone slipped them some like uh, go-go juice this morning or something. Woo! It's the Holy Spirit, that's what it is. They got the Holy Spirit this morning. They are. Uh, they're speaking in tongues too. That's what they're doing. No, I'm just kidding. All right. There's no consonant, so it can't be. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. Sorry. There is no situation, guys. We're talking about hope and trusting God. There's no situation that we care more about than God. Nor is there any situation that we have more control over than God. Okay. There's no situation we care more about, and no situation that He has less control over than we do. Why do we try to take control? Why? What do we feel like we have to have control? What do we feel like we have to have all the plans and all the details? We don't have to. Even in our soteriology or in our doctrines and how we believe we are saved, we often find hope in our ability to choose God. No wonder we struggle to place our hope in Him as we try to live out our salvation. Right? Because if it took... Your doing to choose God, then it has to take your doing to live for God. But if it was God's doing in saving you, then it's God's doing in carrying out the work of your salvation for the rest of life. I don't see any distinction that in Scripture. If He wasn't sovereign over your initial salvation, then He isn't sovereign over the working out of your salvation. It's all or nothing. John Bunyan said this: Sometimes a man is, as he apprehends, so far from God, so far off from God, that they think themselves beyond the reach of God's mercy. But he adds, "It becomes thee, when thou canst not perceive that God is within the reach of thy arm, then to believe that thou art in within the reach of His." For his arm is long, and none knows how long his reach is. Nothing's impossible with God. Trust Him in every trial. He is never defeated by circumstances. When you feel defeated by circumstances, you are not believing that your identity is in Christ. Because if you did, then we know that you are not defeated, but you are victorious. Christ is victorious. It does not matter what our circumstances are. Now we may need to then alter circum, you know, and, and, and be better stewards or change things or work on things, but that comes after we work on our heart and where our heart's at in relation to God. Right? We typically want to change the circumstances thinking that that'll change our heart. But when we change the circumstances, most of the time that all that does is just feed our idol. So it's work on our idol that God's trying to reveal through our circumstances and then ask God how to change our circumstances. We just get the cart before the horse. We need to get the horse before the cart and stop letting the tail wag the dog, right? All right, enough of that. So God is just. He's personally involved. He's completely sovereign. Fourth, God is forever faithful. God is forever faithful. 57 through 80. All right. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown Great mercy to her and she, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to the circumcised the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring that they wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. Remember, cause Zachariah's mute. And he wrote, His name is John. And they all wandered. And immediately, what happens? His mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And then we have Zechariah's prophecy. He says this, 67, And his father Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation Um, For us in the house of the servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give a light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Do you see how faithful God is to fulfill His promises? Even within this chapter, Promises made, promises kept. He promised Zachariah's muteness, and we see the beginning of it, and we see the end of it. We see the promise of John, and then we see his birth. I mean, God's speaking here symbolizes the silence. Symbolizes God's silence since the Book of Malachi, and now the bri- uh, the breaking of that silence symbolizes God's breaking of that silence. So here. Zachariah now can speak and now we see that God is about to speak and it's going to begin with John the Baptist saying, here comes Jesus. He's coming. Be ready. Zechariah was unable to give a benediction nine months earlier or a blessing to the people. Now his first words were a benediction, a statement of praise to God and he recounts the mercy and the greatness of God in those verses that we just read. The Bible's full of promises. We know this. Many of that are fulfilled here in Luke. God promises that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham, and He's keeping that here. God is showing similar mercy here, and those people are exercising faith. Look at Abraham's wife. What do we know about Abraham's wife? What was she? She was barren, right? And God still kept His promises. Now Elizabeth was what? Barren. And look what happened. God kept her, or kept His, rather, promises. God promises to provide redemption, and we see him not forgetting that here. If you look at the book of Isaiah, it talks about a virgin will be with child. We see that here in the text. Isaiah talks about a people, the darkness will begin to cease. We talk about in Isaiah a man will come calling in the wilderness. Talking about the coming of Jesus, this is him. Isn't our God faithful? Always true to his word of promise. He's always true. Do you believe that? He is always true to his promise. If you remain out of Christ, he will remain too true to his promise to punish. But if you repent and trust, his atoning work provides forgiveness for you, and he is faithful to forgive. This is the message that John and Jesus both will proclaim. We deserve death, but God has provided a way through His great love for us to live. So, you cannot believe the promises of God if you do not know and believe the character of God first. We see His promises, but what do His promises come from? I know the Wednesday night group that I taught this past week, we talked a bit about this. Let me say this, every time I hear someone say, I'm going to claim the promises of God, my first thought is, do you actually know the promises of God, or have you developed your own promises based upon your hopes and your idols? That's my first question. Um, like, are the promises based upon just what you, what, so, uh, oftentimes, right, so our lives, our idols, what we desire, we, if you think about it this way, for many of us, our idea of what heaven is, is not what the Bible describes as what heaven is. So for many of us, um, <clears throat> success in the life of our kids, for many of us, that is our idol, or that is what heaven would look like if we could just get there. If I just had all my kids, good, successful lives, then that would be like heaven to me. Or if I just had this certain marriage or the certain job situation, that would be like heaven to me. And so then we try to take promises of God to try and fulfill and help encourage us to get to that heaven that we've made up in our minds. So my first thought is, is do you actually know the promises of God, or have you developed your own promises based upon your hopes and your idols? Then my second thought is, as people say, I'm going to claim the promises of God, is the promises mean nothing without the character of God. I mean, you can believe the promises all you want, but if you don't believe that He's faithful, then you're not going to live in line to those promises. You're not going to live trusting in those promises. You can't, Trust The The promises have to be supported by something. It's like me coming to you saying, I'm going to give you a million dollars tomorrow. But you don't believe that I'm actually true, like that I'm actually faithful, or that I actually have it, right? So you have to know the character of God. So part of this, if we're going to believe God's going to fulfill the promises of God, if He's going to fulfill those things to us, we have to believe that He is faithful to fulfill those, that He has the ability to fulfill those, that He has the desire to fulfill those, that He has the love for us to fulfill those, right? And if we don't believe that those aspects of God, then we can claim the promises all we want. And so I would encourage us not to live in light of the promises of God, but live in light of the character of God, because it's the character of God that will ensure the carrying out of the promises of God. So it's ultimately to point us, when we see the promises of God, the actions of God, if you will, they always reveal the character of God, because actions of God are always consistent with the character of God, right? Our actions are oftentimes not consistent with who we claim to be, but who God claims to be, it's always consistent in His actions because He's God. Same thing with Jesus. And His actions, So His actions always reveal His character perfectly, and who He claims to be in His character is always revealed perfectly in His actions. We are not that way, but God is. So God promises to do certain things, and those promises will be carried out, and then we see that revealing aspects of His character. So He promises here to provide redemption for His people. One of the things that that reveals is, is His just selfless love for us, and then we see His power revealed in the fact that He's able to actually do it. So again, character of God. So promises. So the promises don't mean anything if you don't understand the character of God first. If you're, a, if, so here's the deal, if you are living just by the promises, then you are no different than the world living by some words in some magazine that promises to fulfill your life in some certain way. Let me, let me show you why. The Pharisees lived by the promises of God and yet still missed the gospel, right? They lived by the promises of God. They knew the promises of God better than any of us will ever know them. And they still missed the gospel, The legalists know the promises of God better than most of us will ever know the promises of God, but they still miss the gospel. There's got to be something behind the gospel. I'm sorry. There's got to be something behind the promises, rather, and that's the character of God. We have to know God. His promises are just a reflection of His character. So as you think about the promises that God has made, think about the character of God that it comes from. Now live in light of the character of God, not the promises. So here we see God is faithful in carrying out His promises. So we see the, f- the character of God is His faithfulness. And then that's, that then provides the foundation, the way for all these promises then to come true that we see beginning here in the book of Luke. So, lastly, we see God's just personally involved, sovereign, faithful, surprisingly merciful is the last. God is surprisingly merciful. Even through the cloud of sin, you can see that God is utterly committed to redeeming a people for Himself. Can't you? Even in, I mean, in the midst of the story of Zechariah, he goes, I don't believe you. Through this cloud of sin, you still see God committed to His promise to redeem His people. And it's by His mercy that He's doing this. Luke one fifty says, And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. We should have no fear in this world whatsoever except for the fear, the reverence for a holy God that in His mercy has chosen to save us. We should fear nothing else. When we fear something else, we're believing that our God is not great, that He can't handle it, and a variety of other things. But do you see, let me ask you this question, do you see God's mercy in your life? If you don't see God's mercy in your life, you won't reflect God's mercy to other people. Do you see God's mercy in His life? His actions of mercy flow from where? What does this reveal about the character of God? That He is what? Merciful. God's mercy, the actions, His display of mercy, doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from His character of being merciful. Like He didn't choose to redeem a people like, just for the heck of it. It came from somewhere. And one of the places that it came from was his character of being merciful. If he was not merciful, if God, if that was not a characteristic of God, the redemption would have never happened. But because he is merciful, he then provides a way. Now, of course, there's love and goodness and the kindness of God, all that in there too, but mercy. God exercises mercy on us. So you are always doing one of the following. Okay? You're always doing, we are all always doing one of the following. We're either laboring to see the mercy of God, and therefore your heart is being softened towards God and others, or you take for granted the mercy of God, and so your heart is hardened towards God and towards other people. We're always doing one thing. This is not a place where we can just stand neutral or in. A position of non-movement. We are moving in one direction or the other. We're laboring to see God's mercy and then live in light of God's mercy, or we are choosing to take for granted God's mercy, and then we live in light of taking for granted God's mercy. So labor to notice God's mercy in your life. Labor to see that. Labor to see God's mercy. Labor to show mercy to those around you. Right? But here's the deal. Like, we have to see, believe, love the fact that God has been merciful to us. And then flowing from that comes our mercy to other people. Like, it isn't going to be enough to put a sticky note on your car that says, be merciful because as soon as that driver cuts you off, dude, it's done, okay? But, if in that moment, the first thing that comes up out of your heart is that God has been merciful towards you, then what will flow from there is probably repentance (laughs) and not the honking on your horn. I'm not saying the horn is wrong. I'm just saying, like, does that reflect mercy in your heart, okay? All right. Let me ask you, are you acquainted with the mercy of God? You should be daily acquainted with the mercy of God. We all need mercy, redemption, rescue, and we all can have this in Christ if we are humble enough to find it in Him. If we are humble enough to forsake seeking it all other places and find our mercy in Him. And then the blessings of mercy will flow from our lives to those around us. So, I want to pray for us. I want us to sing. I know it's a little late. I'm sorry, but I want us to sing and reflect on the mercy of God, and the justice of God, and the personal involvement of God. I don't remember my other points, the faithfulness of God. uh, I want us to reflect on these truths, okay? And as we sing, you are stronger with uh, Robbie and Greg. So, let's pray as they come forward. God, you are so good to us, and Father, um, I just am in love with you this morning. Father, I just pray that um, we find our hope in you. Father, because you are worthy of that. We can trust you because you are just. We can trust you and we can place our hope in you because you are sovereign. Father, because you are personally involved. Because you are faithful. And Father, because you are merciful. And we see all of these glorious truths in just a few verses at the beginning of the book of Luke. And Father, I hope that our hearts await an anxiousness to see you more clearly revealed this week. As we live out these truths, as we try and struggle to live in lie to these truths. And Father, I pray that we live in anxiousness awaiting to discover more of these truths, this week, tomorrow, tonight, as we don't have idle conversations and worthless conversations, but we have conversations that are centered around knowing you. And Father, let us proceed forward with anxious hearts awaiting to see you more clearly revealed through the book of Luke. As we study together as a unified body, seeking to glorify you, and Father, it's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Shall stand us? We sing. You are stronger.